Hey everybody, it's Joe Trippy, and welcome back to That Trippy Show. Today we welcome a guest I've been excited about talking to for a while, her perspective on defending democracy and the fight versus authoritarianism is really unique. Ruth ben is the author of Strongman, Mussolini to the President, and she has a newsletter called Lucid on Threats to Democracy. We'll put a link to that in our show notes. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you. Glad to be here. Look, I, I wanted to do ask, I, look, I think your book is a must read. Uh, it really illustrates quite a bit about where we are, how we got here. This has been in motion for a long time and that Trump learned a lot of lessons and uh, from previous authoritarians out there. And one of the biggest points you make in your book is how close we came to the edge in 2020 and that Republicans haven't stopped pushing towards authoritarianism. I want to get your take on sort of the big news infrastructure and in, 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 in what's been going on with bills passing in Congress. We'll get to that a little later, but I do want you to, to talk a bit about where, where we are, where you see us uh, right now in this crisis. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned 2020 because um, if you look at it, so Strongman is the first book that places Trump in the context of uh, 100 years of authoritarian history. <clears throat> and I was, that's how I see him. That's how I saw him from the very second he started campaigning. And uh, many people thought that was crazy to see him as having a personality cult. But um, I, it, I, and I would have loved to have been wrong. But what he what he managed to do, which is very relevant now, is impose a kind of um, authoritarian party discipline on the GOP. And just so your audience knows how unusual this is, a lot of the um, both the old fascists and people like Berlusconi in Italy, who's a good president, they um, created their own parties. And so they, it makes more sense that they would have control, iron-fisted control. Trump did this incredible thing because he came from outside and he, you know, contemplated being trying to run for president before, but he came from outside and he totally domesticated this party. And when I say authoritarian discipline, he made it so that no dissent is possible within the party. And to the point where, you know, during the second impeachment after January 6th, GOP lawmakers who voted to impeach him had to buy body armor like Representative Meyer because they were getting death threats. So and we've seen what's happened to Liz Cheney and basically now a lot of uh, Republicans uh, who don't want to submit are resigning, not, you know, they're not going to run for office again. So this is relevant because his leader cult has continued into the present into the present. And this is also not uncommon if they're not prosecuted there, especially if they never accepted their loss and people think they're coming back. This party leader um, relationship so just continues you, you, on. You, you talk about how, you know, we've promoted authoritarian regimes over you know, overseas, um, and that it was just a, a matter of time before the chickens came home to roost with, with Trump. Um, how did that, I mean, how did that impact Trump? I mean, was it, was it because he was learning from what he was seeing out there or? 
Yeah. Um, so Trump's different than everybody else I studied. Um, and I the book is mostly right wing authoritarians because I wanted to show what happened to fascism <clears throat> after fascism stopped. Then you had all the right wing military coups, which are very relevant. Um, I never knew how relevant writing about coups would be. Um, January 6th showed that. So, you know, he he doesn't read. He's different that way. So he wasn't studying uh, any kind of playbook, although I believe his first wife, Ivana, when she said that he only had two books in their bedroom. One was, of course, Art of the Deal, his book that and then the other was Hitler's uh, speeches. So he's a superb propagandist. He's one of the best propagandists of the 21st century, actually, so far. That's, I mean, it might seem like a crazy thing to say, but he's highly skilled. He goes by instinct, though. And one of the things I, I didn't expect to find, and it's bad news for us, is how similar his personality is to of most of the other authoritarians I study. Now the outcome's different. You don't have, you know, except for China, North Korea, you don't have one party dictatorships today. It, it all works differently today, but their personalities where they have a mania for control, where they're opportunists, where they say they don't care, they're amoral and all of this serves them very well. So, you know, they all do the same things. They recognize moments in history where there's a, a longing for something that wasn't satisfied in the political marketplace. And so Trump came in and he he brought together under this movement and this leader called all these existing strands of extremism uh, from, you know, white power people to just disaffected Republicans to people who uh, felt he called them the forgotten. And so he goes on instinct and then they manipulate the spaces of opportunity that are presented. So, but he said, that said, he does, as we've seen, he, he really admires people who can have total power. He admires Xi in China. He, of course, Putin, he, he learns from, and he very much was informed by the Russian information warfare playbook. So they do emulate each other. And, and I have many examples in the book where they, they watch very carefully what happens to each other so Putin got very freaked out when Gaddafi uh, met such a violent end uh, during the Arab Spring. And that's when he started his own crackdown. So they get very nervous if they see other strong men uh, falling. And so to come back to Trump, it, I, pre I predicted the, the first uh, edition of the book I had to turn in in the summer of 2020. I didn't know what was going to happen with the election, but I predicted that he wouldn't leave office like quietly. He wouldn't do a normal transfer of power because what you know about all these guys is they don't go quietly because not only they get they need the adulation, they need the financial support because they all, you know, profit off of public office, but they need immunity from prosecution. All they care about is themselves. They have zero interest in public welfare. So they have to stay in office. So Trump's trick, you know, he tried everything. We know that story. And then nothing worked. And so he, he did the coup attempt. And his genius has been to get millions of people to think that he still won the election. And so in a way, his followers have never had to acknowledge that he lost, that he's gone. He's still there for them. But this is so each one has a different outcome, but they all have a similar personality. So you can kind of predict how they're going to behave. So one of the, your recent newsletters, you talked about how cults 
persist after their leaders leave power. Uh, and, you know, so what, what can be done to stop them? I mean, it, it, we talked about it on our show before, you know, why the January 6th committee is so important. Uh, but, but it, you know, it, it definitely seems like whether Trump goes or not, this is going to persist. Am I wrong about that? No. And, you know, when when Trump was defeated, many people, because I think it's a normal human emotion, you're so sick of him and you want to just you want to think that things will be normal. So um, people said, oh, well, his personality call, it's all going to be over now. And I always hate to be the, you know, um, harbinger of bad news. And I was like, no, it's not going to go away um, because of who he is and the, the level of devotion. And what what I show in the book is that um, prosecution and accountability measures uh, are crucial to um, deflating a personality cult. And in the case of Berlusconi, who is very similar to Trump, and they didn't wreck democracy, but he 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 had like an authoritarian style government. And some people think he should be in the book, but he's very very important to understand how things work today. So he had to resign after. I think he had 34 corruption trials, sex scandals with underage women, name it. He had the Eurozone crisis, mismanagement, everything he had. So he was forced to resign by the president. And but he was he was prosecuted. And this is very important. And he didn't go to jail because he was too old by then. So he just did community service. But he was banned for running for office for five years. And the reason this is so important is that his party which is the equivalent to the GOP, it did really well in elections even two years after he left office because his prosecution hadn't been completed yet. So there was this idea that he could come back. So we're living living through this. And and another example in Pinochet in Chile, who was a, a dictator for 17 years, he still stayed the head of the army and he had his personality cut going. And it was only when he was prosecuted um, that some of his and his corruption came out for public view. That's why doing like in our case, the work of the January 6th committee is so important. When these things come out in disclosure, people who were his followers can finally see evidence that he was. Corrupt. Yeah, Berlusconi uh, is an interesting case because I, I actually uh uh, worked uh, for Romano Prodi when he defeated Berlusconi, and I was oh. amazed during that race, uh, during that campaign, how he would keep coming back. I mean, we would think he was you know, that we had, uh, you, you know, vanquished him, and he would just keep, and he would say crazy things that would make him come back. I mean, it was, and we we did beat him. But then, of course, I think nine months later, he did come back. I mean, because he came back and won. Um, uh, and so it wasn't until the process, I mean, because I was watching that closely, it wasn't until the prosecution started to happen, all the cases and things uh, that you point out, where you started to see the possibility that finally maybe it, he would go. And it, it does ring true to me that that the, what you're saying about how prosecution and punishment really does does matter um, as part of ending this. And, and one, I mean, do you see that happening? I mean, Merrick Garland, I mean, are you seeing any signs that, or are you worried about it, that they were not taking it serious, that the um, justice system isn't taking it seriously enough? 
Yeah, here's the problem. Uh, although uh, authoritarians uh, like Trump, he, I, he truly wanted to just go like when he was saying to uh, the Chinese head of state, oh, you get to just execute people and it's all so quick and efficient. Well, we can't do that in a democracy. <laughs> and so the pace of justice is really slow in a democracy. And because you have to respect the rule of law and you can't just, you know, although we've done it before after 9-11. And so that's one factor. So it takes a long time. The other is something that's unfortunate that I've seen in history before. And actually, after Berlusconi's first term, if you come into office after an authoritarian who the scale of whose corruption is mind boggling, I don't even think people have wrap their heads around the scale of Trump's corruption, because uh, I work, I've been working, you know, not only on corruption, there's a whole chapter on corruption in the book, but my newsletter, I interview experts on kleptocracy. And Trump is completely enmeshed in these global flows of, of international, you know, illicit capital. He was on the supply side as, as the money launderer. So he's in, it's, it's a very, it's a very large le level of corruption he's in. So when somebody, when, when you come to office after that, you tend to be overcautious because you don't want to be accused uh, by the right of being uh, kind of persecutory. And you also don't want to seem like uh, Trumpian. So sometimes and it happened when Berlusconi's first term, he lost office. He was he was voted out after his first term and the center left came in and they decided and people can relate to this. They didn't want to prosecute Berlusconi because they were so sick of his personality cult. He also, for your uh, audience, he owned mm -hmm. television networks. Yep. So it's as though Trump also owned television networks, like all the cable networks. He owned them. So they didn't want to prosecute. And they didn't pass any anti-corruption uh, laws. And then what happened is Berlusconi came back less than two years later. So that's the problem. I, I understand why there's this slow pace, but Merrick Garland's also been way too cautious because the only thing that's going to stop Trump is, uh, is prosecution. So who is this going to matter to? This is, it, Trump obviously said he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and no one would care. I mean, is the, his base is not going to go away because of this. Even if he's convicted, right, they're just going to think it's a witch hunt. So who who does this actually matter to? That's a great question. And one thing is uh, sometimes people say, well, we can't we can't prosecute them because it is going to play into their victim complex, which all strongmen have giant victim complexes. They all talk about witch hunts. It's not just Trump, Berlusconi and Erdogan. They all talk about witch hunts. So some people say, well, we're just going to, it's going to backfire because they're going to seem like even bigger martyrs. Or they worry there's going to be like civil unrest because he's energized all these violent people. But we already had civil unrest. You know, police officers getting their heads bashed in on January 6th, that was already unrest. So the point is to get to your question. It won't matter immediately to people and it could it could hugely piss them off. Right. Oh, yeah. What Trump said was right. There is a wish hunt. But what what history shows and political science studies and legal studies in the longer run, and it takes a long time because pe these people are indoctrinated and getting out of authoritarian cults takes a long time. 
It doesn't yeah. happen overnight. That's why one historian said about who studied Hitler occult, he said it's deflate. It's like a slow deflation, like so, like the air going out of a balloon. It it doesn't just burst overnight. But prosecution can, will matter eventually, and it matters very much to the nation. It matters to all the people who maybe are in the middle, and they see this, and that's why. In other countries like truth and reconciliation commissions, where you have testimony that's public. And that's why January 6th, when the Capitol Police officers testified publicly, this was a big deal. And we need much more of this. You know, one of the things that, that came up in Virginia that parallels uh, what you wrote about in your book, you know, the fight over, you know, critical race theory and education, how authoritarians try to rewrite history constantly. Do you see that happening right now in, in, in these elections and, and with, with what's going on? Yeah. And it's it's you know, I, I have a lot in the book about uh, in I focus on Pinochet's Chile as a case study. This was a U.S. backed coup. And unfortunately, uh, we're living through the playbook that the U.S. used. Um, it's happening again now. But uh, I talk about how they purged the education system. They had book burnings, book bans. All kinds of things, and I didn't, I didn't know it was going to be quite so relevant. Yeah. They're going after big, big bird now. <laughs> big bird's a communist. Yeah, today. Yeah, and so, and so, every one of the reasons I wrote the book actually, one was Trump, and I'm an American, you know, first generation American, very proud of Americans' freedoms. So I wrote it because Trump was there, but I also wrote it as a, as a historian because I've seen all over the world wherever authoritarians come to power history becomes the target and they need to refashion the past to suit their needs of the present. So trying to ban the teaching of, of racism and slavery and exploitation is creating new generation that can be blissfully ignorant so that a new persecution can happen again. It also makes feel people feel better like to, to get their consciences in order because if you don't know about something, you, you don't need to feel guilty. And so there's a lot of um, Representative Krauss, who was trying to introduce a book ban in Texas of over 800 books, the reason he gave, he said, I don't, students shouldn't feel guilt or discomfort. And this is your moral compass. So what the GOP is trying to do is remove our moral compass. And that's, I, I show in the corruption chapter and the propaganda chapter that this is a precondition for the success of authoritarianism. It's a it, it really is a, a a really instructive read. And, and I, I, I can't urge uh, people enough. Uh, and we'll we'll put a, a link uh, to the book in, in the show notes as well. But the, this is what bothers me right now. And I just want to get your take on it. I, I'm sitting here watching the infrastructure. The, you know, the, the fight over the, the, you know, these five month argument about how much it's going to cost, what's in the package, what's in both bills, all that stuff. And it strikes me that the coverage has sort of missed a big point and that it's really simple. Like this is what democracy looks like to people who strongly believe in, in uh, uh, with different views, arguing uh, strongly, uh, debating uh, hard and then at, over time, somehow coming to enough votes between them on a compromise that no one's really happy about, but it, it passes because enough people on both sides had that debate, fought it out, and, and agreed on something. In, in contrast to that, authoritarianism is everybody bowing 
and doing whatever one guy wants. And so it seems to me that a lot of the coverage of what we're seeing doesn't doesn't focus enough on this is this is democracy. This is what it looks like. This is why we have these debates. This is why it does take time to come to consensus. In a strange way, does that help the authoritarian though? So I wanted to get your take on that and what, what you think of the current, you know, passing of it, et cetera. Yeah, that's very smart because you're absolutely right. So if democracy is not the frame, then it's too easy to depict it as a big mess. And I'm very unhappy with media coverage. Um, I don't like to attack the media because they have enough people issuing death threats all the time. But the whole way they've interpreted the Biden administration as a series of failures is insane because what they're trying to do is really lay a foundation for a more equitable future so that you can take away some of the conditions that lead to authoritarianism. So universal pre-K, you know, a, a better infrastructure, um, you know, economic equality through subsidies lessened. But you're right that we have become uh, unused to uh, the idea of compromise because democracy is about, uh, as you just said, free discussion, airing disagreements and agreeing to disagree and not hating people because of it. This was the normal practice. But what happened, and I explain in the book uh, on the heels of research of Norn Ornstein and other people, already by the, Trump, by the time Trump came in, the GOP had moved to uh, starting, he just jump-started what was already going on where they, they didn't wanna have the, the values of mutual tolerance and compromise. They wanted to just win at any cost. And so they already started to adopt authoritarian behaviors and values. And then Trump saw that and he hugely souped it up and he added the leader cult. So democracy is messy. And the thing is, you can't get what you want all the time in democracy. You, that's what compromises. But Trump comes and says, I'm going to fix it. It's my way and the highway. And people, people fall for that. They've fallen for that for 100 years. But and then there's uh, so we're in this like battle over political cultures right now. And uh, the media is unhelpful in the way it's depicting this because they're not putting the frame of democracy front and center. And this is a, it's, it's not just a missed opportunity, it's actually really dangerous. So what do we, the, that's what I wanted to get to then. So what, what, what between, like how long do we have? I mean, the 2022 elections are coming up, Republicans could win the, the House, you know, worried about whether that House would then even certify, you know, the, the true winner or, 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 or January 6th happens and they certify, you know, Trump no matter what or whoever their, their nominee is. One, how long do we have? And two, what can we start to do to put democracy front, front and center? Is that what we need to do? Or, or are, we, are we fighting the wrong fight in these elections in terms of the so, yeah, so one, one thing that um, the Biden administration, which I admire very much, is not addressing sufficiently, and this is part of the answer to what can we do, a lot of the things it's doing are about, as I said, about long-term prosperity, long-term wellness of society. Uh, investing in universal pre-K. Now, the vaccine programs are, are about an immediate crisis, but they're also about future health and saving the health of new generation with kids getting vaccinated. 
But all of this is a long-term investment, whereas we have an emergency right now. And so what they're not doing well enough, and, and Biden uses the democracy versus autocracy really effectively in, in foreign policy speeches when he right. did the, the summit with Putin and other times. He's really good on that messaging, but he's not doing it domestically. And as you know, I and others point out, if you don't save democracy, like the taxes, even infrastructure, I'd, I'd rather have more potholes, honestly, and I'd rather have the right to vote and not some maniac in the White House. And so it, it's hard. They, they need to do both. I, I, if, they, if they are going to persist in these this big projects, they, they need to secure democracy uh, because otherwise nothing, nothing's going to matter. So that's, that's part of what they can do um, because they're in power. You know, even when Biden talks about it foreign policy wise, he says, you know, the authoritarians out there in the world uh, believe democracy takes too long to find consensus, that it can't move fast enough. And then for five months, we debate ferociously, you know, uh, 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 and, and with with passion, the, the differences in a bill. And it took, you know, it takes three, four months to get the infrastructure bill passed. It passed. But again, I think I get what you're saying, though, that that's stuff that will happen later on. And they're, the crisis for democracy is right now, particularly with the suppression voter suppression laws that are passing and, and, and things along those lines. Yeah. Well, they're setting up what, what if the big picture is and to, to address your, how much time do we have under our eyes every day before our eyes, they're setting up this, this system of let, what's called electoral autocracy. Cause today you don't get rid of elections like in Pinochet and the fascists today you have elections and you fix them to make sure the results are what, you need. And you do that through, they're doing it, it's what they're doing right now. They're purging the entire electoral apparatus of non-loyalists. So they're either threatening them so they remove themselves. That's called passive purge when you make things intolerable. So people say, this isn't worth it, I'm resigning. And then you staff it with, with fanatics and ideologues, they're doing that. But they're also making voting more difficult as we know through voting suppression, but also more threatening. I've written about for the Washington Post, and I've got my eye on uh, this poll workers and election judges who can be armed. So there are bills going through in some of these states like Texas, which is Texas is a laboratory for the future. There's a bill that's in committee that uh, is about curbside voting. And it says that the poll watcher who, because Texas could be armed with some kind of crazy assault rifle, can go in your car as long as the car, someone else is, there's two voters at least in the car and it holds five people so that they can go in your car and watch what you're doing. And you can only imagine the opportunities for intimidation. And there's a whole bunch of bills like this, Wisconsin, other places. So voting will not only become more difficult, it will become more threatening. And then even if you do vote, the election can be fixed. So we're living through all of that. So that's in terms of, yes, that's how long do we have. The midterms would result in, in, they would be fraudulent. But part of me thinks, you know, they may do something, I don't know what kind of anti-democratic action, but something may happen long before because they can't really wait till 2024 
uh, in order, the way propaganda works, you have to keep people agit in a state of agitation. And so they've they've been saying that, uh, and this is where QAnon is helpful, that Trump's going to come back. What was it, August 13th? He was supposed right. to come back on August 13th. Yeah. And then there's, there's something like something's supposed to happen on November 11th. And you have to keep putting these crumbs for the masses out there. But 2024 is really far away. Um, and Trump's getting old. So I don't know what will go on, but it seems an, it's it's an eternity to wait for the your prophet to return. So we we shall see in terms of how long do we have. But 2022, though, is only a year away. We yeah. saw what happened in Virginia in terms of his voters coming out. I mean, uh, clearly, there are a lot of Trump voters who came out for Yunkin, who was playing both sides, you know. I'm a Trump guy, no, no, but I'm I'm really a moderate, you know, kind of thing. If Republicans use that playbook in 2022 and do get a majority, you know, win the Senate and the House, doesn't I mean, it, it, isn't that like you know a, a pretty pretty tough blow to take for democracy? I mean, because of their authoritarian yeah. tendencies, and then at that point. Maybe Trump doesn't go, but whether it's a DeSantis or or an Abbott in Texas, yeah, uh, that becomes the, their their new authoritarian leader. Yeah, well, they're setting up a system so that they don't need the leader as much. And this is where the uh, our country has so much states' rights and states' power; it becomes much more dangerous um, than other places where you have authoritarianism. They don't have all they don't have this level of uh, states. So that the whole thing could already be set up. The other thing to say is that the kind of people who are coming into office, we just saw with these elections, a whole lot of extremists, uh, including people who openly preach violence, are now lawmakers. And I've seen this, obviously, with fascism. Berlusconi, the same thing happened. People who were like considered like fringe crazies who were openly like, I love Mussolini. Well, then they're in parliament and they're even ministers. So um, like the equivalent of secretary, your cabinet officials. So we're living through this like mainstreaming of extremism. And so once you st staff Congress with these crazy uh, extremists, and then if, if they get the right results in 2022, it matters much less who it is because the system's already fixed. So it's it's really it's really very disturbing, and we really are witnesses to history. And my role has been to uh, both try and look. It's been it was very odd to write the book because I was like writing the history of the present, and also I have a whole through my op eds and a little bit in the book also trying to predict the future based on the past. And again, I I'm, always want to be wrong, but so far I haven't been. But we are living through a very historic time. That's why I, I keep uh, calling for people to join a pro-democracy coalition. I mean, forget about, I mean, yeah. Republicans, former Republicans, Democrats, independents, everybody out there, you know, don't, find a group that's pro-democracy, join it, help help them and uh, become active and, and, and you know, organize, uh, donate, whatever, but help because I think the 2022 election is going to be... Um, uh, I think if we, if the authoritarians gain control of the house or the, or the Senate or both, 
it's a slide that's very going to be very, very tough to, 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 to move back in the right direction. We may, I, I fear that we're already slid too far if we don't engage enough Americans now uh, to come together and realize what's really at stake. And I do think that's where the Biden administration at some point domestically needs, needs to at least raise that uh, and put democracy front and center. Yeah. And so to end on a more optimistic note, uh, I have a chapter in the book on resistance and over a hundred years. And you, you do, you have to build a pro-democracy movement and in places where it's worked to get rid of dictators, like in Chile, uh, everybody, but the communists came together, including the socialists, and they formed a pro-democracy movement, one giant coalition and with that unity, they were able to do all the things they needed to do, like register millions of voters, um, have the right kinds of ads to reach people and give them hope. And if they could do it after 17 years of you know, dictatorship with torture and stuff, we, we can do this now to save democracy. We're a very large country and that makes it more difficult, but uh, unity is the way to go. Thanks, Ruth. That's that's a good way to, to, to put it and to, to put us on a positive note as we end because uh, we're running out of time. You know, thanks, Ruth, for coming on today. And thanks for listening to that trippy show. You can find Ruth on Twitter at Ruth Ben Giat. That's G-H-I-A-T on Twitter. Check out her newsletter, Lucid, and her book, Strongmen. We'll include links to both in our show notes. And Ruth, thank you so much uh, uh, for for writing this, I think it's very important, but also for, for coming on today and giving your views. It's really important. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, thanks for listening to That Trippy Show. Don't forget, please subscribe to That Trippy Show and leave a review on Apple or wherever you listen. And please do share uh, this with a friend. You know, email the link to them. You can always send us a question to thattrippyshow at gmail.com or leave us a question in a review on iTunes. See you next time.